0: Welcome to the Political Economy Forum podcast. I'm Morgan Wack, graduate student and co-producer of this podcast and affiliate of the Political Economy Forum at the University of Washington. On today's episode, I'll be hosting a discussion with Dr. Shelby Grossman, who is a research scholar at the Stanford Internet Observatory. Welcome to the podcast, Shelby.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Of course. Today, we'll be focusing our discussion primarily on the intersection of new technologies, misinformation, and politics in the Global South, which is a subject you've studied in detail in your own research. Can you start off by giving us a bit of background on how you came to be involved in misinformation research?
1: Uh, Yeah, sure. So I was an assistant professor in the political science department at the University of Memphis up until 2019. And in 2019, I joined the Stanford Internet Observatory as a research scholar, where for the past two years, I've been focusing on analyzing the spread of misinformation and disinformation.
0: I'm sure that uh, has been busy work. There hasn't been a lack of that in the last couple of years. So maybe you could talk us through a bit of your work. So, in a recent article for the the Brookings Institute, you noted that between 2018 and 2020, Facebook and Twitter announced that they had taken down 147 influence operations. What exactly do they mean by influence operation? How would you describe these types of activities and these campaigns?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the impetus for this research that we did was really that I have spent so much of the past two years, as have many of the people on my team, analyzing networks that Facebook and Twitter suspends um, for violating their their terms of service. And I just wanted to write something to kind of synthesize all of the trends that we had been seeing. So I wrote this article with our our pre-doctoral fellow, Josh Goldstein. Um, And so, yeah, what is an influence operation? So I think in general terms, like an influence operation is just an organized effort to try to influence people. Um, But in this context, what we're talking about specifically are online operations that typically coordinate to try to push a certain narrative or achieve some other sort of objective, and that rely on fake accounts, fake accounts. So fake accounts are typically central to the operations that we're looking at in this study. Um, And so... These operations are called different things by Facebook and Twitter. So Facebook calls them coordinated inauthentic behavior. Twitter calls it coordinated harmful activity. Um, And there are slight differences in the definitions, but basically the key attributes of these online disinformation campaigns that they suspend and make public are that there is one coordination and two, that the network is being covert in one way or another. And while an influence operation or coordinated inauthentic behavior need not be political, empirically, the operations that these platforms are disclosing and the operations in the data set that we used here are almost always linked to a political actor.
0: That's fascinating. I know we, we usually think of the operations that have taken place here in the U.S. And we have a specific focus on a lot of Russian disinformation and misinformation. Um, so maybe you can talk us through some of the tactics that have been used here and other places, um, including things like fake accounts that you mentioned. One of my favorites that uh, I think you discussed in this article that I've seen elsewhere is typo squatting, which uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about, which always I always fall for because I'm a terrible speller. And so those ones, those ones definitely get me. Maybe you can talk us through a few of those.
1: Yeah, totally. So one of the things I find really amazing having worked on 15 of these of these takedown reports is just how similar the tactics are across totally different countries that we're looking at operations have totally different objectives. So it's really just striking like how similar the tactics are. So, you know, one of the really common tactics is the creation of fake news outlets on on Facebook or Twitter. And this is distinct from, you know, quote unquote, fake news. So, you know, when we talk about, I think, fake news, people typically mean, you know, a website that is providing information that is false. And most of the time most of the time, these operations are not providing false information. They're providing like unfalsifiable, hyper-partisan information, but they're doing so via these fake news outlets. And so sometimes these, these outlets will be like a totally new thing that they created. So they'll create something called Philippines 24-7 that's pretending to be like a news site for the Philippines. And then other times, as you alluded to, they will try to imitate a real news outlet. And they'll do this sometimes with with typo squatting, which means you create, for example, a Facebook URL that looks almost identical to the Facebook URL for the real media outlet, except instead of an underscore, there's a period or something like that. Um, and so, you know, you could totally understand why a citizen would would see something like that and think that it's the the real outlet. And so, you know, maybe like these operations are learning from each other. So, you know, maybe bad actors see what Russia does and then they try to emulate that. Or maybe like all of these actors just on their own have come to the same conclusion that fake news outlets are just like a really effective strategy for these operations. I don't know, Um, but that's definitely like one really common tactic. Um, Another really common tactic that we just see over and over and over again, is what we call astroturfing. So this is where an influence operation will create like sock puppet accounts. So for example, a Twitter account that claims to be a totally normal, ordinary Libyan citizen. And that account expresses certain political preferences with the goal of trying to make it look like, for example, everyone in Libya supports this particular political actor. Um, and interestingly, we've seen this not just, you know, I think most of the time we think about political astroturfing, but there's also non political astroturfing. So, to give like one example of that, um, we analyzed a network of Twitter accounts that were suspended and linked to a Saudi digital marketing firm. And this firm had actually done astroturfing in support of one of their commercial clients, Dunkin' Donuts. So they had had these sock puppet accounts claim to support Dunkin' Donuts in various ways and say things like, oh, my God, can you believe how cheap the coffee is? Um, so you can have, you know, astroturfing for all sorts of, of purposes. So we see that both on, on Facebook and, and Twitter. Um, yes, yeah, so I think those are kind of the two main tactics that we, we see over and over and over again, these fake news outlets and sock puppet accounts doing astroturfing.
0: That's really interesting, would the, so you mentioned the platforms have slightly different definitions and it's not always political, what accounts they report on. In the Dunkin' Donuts example, would that be considered inauthentic behavior and that, would that be taken down if the Facebook or Twitter came upon
1: that? Yeah, so to stick with Twitter, for example, um, Twitter will make public virtually all of the accounts and all of the tweets that they have suspended that are linked to a political influence operation. Um, So there's, you know, a great website that Twitter has where you can literally just download these data sets. Anyone can access them. Um, And they're only making public the political operations, as far as I know, but sometimes these political operations are run by digital marketing firms. And in those cases, they'll often make public all of the tweets from accounts that were run by these digital marketing firms. So in the Dunkin' Donuts example, we came across that because this digital marketing firm called Smot had been pushing all of these anti-Khashoggi narratives. Um, but then it was it also had all these commercial clients, so we were able to kind of see all of it. But typically, I don't think Twitter makes public um, accounts that they suspend for for kind of non-political spam or. Um, in authentic commercial activity.
0: yeah. Got it. You think a digital marketing firm would have a more attractive name than SMOT, but I guess I'm not in the business. So (laughs) Um, yeah, so maybe you can talk us through a specific case on the political side in maybe a developing country outside the US. What does it actually look like on the ground or perhaps not on the ground, but in the digital sphere? What are one of these operations that you've worked on? How does it take place and how does it interact with more authentic accounts?
1: Yeah, so... You know, it's hard to think of a kind of typical example because they're in this space. There are really like sophisticated actors and there are unsophisticated actors. And the tactics that they use just really vary enormously. It's like apples and oranges. You can't even kind of compare them. But So I'll give an example of a sophisticated operation that we worked on at the end of last year. So um, at the end of the last year, I was working with my colleague Hadija Ramali, who is a Libyan social media expert. And she had been monitoring uh, Twitter narratives about these two Russian individuals who were being imprisoned in Libya. And she was coming, and so this was an issue that was a real priority for the government of Russia. and. At the same time, Libyans didn't really care about this. Like they just weren't that concerned that these two Russian dudes were in prison. And so Hadija was coming across all of these supposedly Libyan accounts that were tweeting about how it was so important to free these, these Russian prisoners. And so, you know, for her, she's like so familiar with the Libyan social media space. She just, it just kind of like raised some red flags. And she started looking at some of the phrases that they were using and realized that many accounts were using like the same type of phrasing when talking about these prisoners. So she built out kind of a a Twitter list. um, And then from there found a couple of uh, Facebook accounts that had the same names as the Twitter accounts and were using similar uh, phrases when talking about these Russian prisoners. Uh, so we brought this network to Twitter and Facebook. It turns out Facebook had at the same time already been investigating the same network. Um, and so they ended up sharing the kind of larger network that they had found. And so what, what did we see in this network? So we saw a couple of really interesting things. So we saw these, these Russian prisoner narratives. Um, and by the way, uh, Facebook attributed this operation to individuals linked to Russian oligarch Yevgeny Prigozhin. So we saw these narratives about the Russian prisoners, but maybe more interestingly, we saw that they had created um, a media brand called Stop Terror. And there was a Facebook page for this media brand. It posted weekly podcasts. Um, Hadija would listen to them every week. It uh, had real Libyans who were employed by this media brand. We looked at their at their profiles on on Facebook, and saw that they had stop terror media badges. They were getting trained by international media training outlets like BBC Media Action, um, and they were pushing all sorts of interesting narratives. So they were uh, often trying to undermine uh, international peace negotiations that are happening um, in Libya. They would say things like, you know, there can be no peace while these Russian prisoners are, you know, still in in prison. Those sorts of things. Um, so again, you know, not really like spreading misinformation per se, but, you know, spreading kind of hyper-partisan, arguably unproductive narratives. Um, yeah, so that's kind of one example of like a recent operation, but again, that's really sophisticated, the use of like on the ground, people having a podcast, um, to give just maybe one other super quick example of like an unsophisticated actor, um, my colleague, uh, Josh Goldstein, analyzed a Twitter network that was linked to the Thai military. And this network just had lots of like really undeveloped Twitter accounts that would tweet narratives, content, you know that was aligned with the objectives of the the Thai military. The tweets got basically no engagement um, and it was just taken down pretty soon after it started. So you kind of have like operations on both sides of the table.
0: You mentioned that um, your colleague came across these Libyan accounts based on her professional understanding of the media space, noticing red flags and repeat accounts. Can you talk us through how this type of forensic um, investigation works for you and people at the SIO, the Stanford um, Internet Observatory?
1: Yeah, so in terms of like what my team does, it kind of varies based on whether we we find the network ourselves or sometimes Facebook and Twitter just share these networks with us and, you know, they found them using whatever methods, you know, they're using, but let's talk about, you know, examples where our team has found stuff. So when we're talking about unsophisticated actors, it's still pretty easy to find coordinated activity that's leveraging fake accounts. Um, So for one example, I remember I was, I don't even speak Arabic and I was just monitoring Libyan Twitter discourse around uh, some peace negotiations that happened about a year ago. And I just saw a long convoluted hashtag that was like critical of Qatar. And, you know, it just, even again, even I don't even speak Arabic, but I still like, this just doesn't seem, it just doesn't like feel organic. And, you know, you look at the first few users of the hashtag on Twitter, um, they all have the same account creation date. They all have profile photos that were stolen from the same sort of site. they all then go on to share other similar hashtags. Um, so again, you know that's not definitive, but you know in that case we brought it to Twitter and they were like, "Yep, this is, um, you know, coordinated and these look like fake accounts to us. We're going to take it down." So that's kind of one example, and it's still pretty easy to do that for, again, these kind of like unsophisticated actors. Um, you can also, you know, look for AI generated profile photos, but increasingly that has become so easy to spot that at least if you're trying to develop like a long-term persona it's probably no longer safe to use like an AI generated profile photo. Um, and you could do what Hadija did where she just found a phrase that was being used over and over again and kind of found coordination, um, found coordination that way. But I mean, for that way, but for like a lot of this stuff, it's, it's very, for these more sophisticated actors It's going to become close to impossible. I think for, for ordinary people to detect this stuff, um, So, you know, just with like, you know, Russians leveraging local people, there will be ways to kind of get there. But um, I think for some of these cases, unless you're Facebook, unless you're Twitter and you have access to, you know, who knows what data they're leveraging to identify these networks, it will be hard for, you know, just people like me to find some of this stuff.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's terrifying, but also fascinating at the same time. Um, Before we switch over to the theory side, I just want to ask one more question about these campaigns on the ground. Uh, You mentioned that, there's begun to be a shift kind of offshore, most famously with the Internet Research Agency um, with Russia. But you also note that there have been offshoring operations in the Philippines and a couple other places where larger state actors will outsource these types of operations to other countries. Do you think this is primarily to reduce liability or do you think it's to reduce costs because these are mostly you know, manned operations? Why do we think we see this shift towards outsourcing in this area?
1: Yeah, I think there are lots of reasons and it's everything you just said. So, you know, I think primarily it's a useful tactic because it provides this layer of plausible deniability. So if you're a government and you outsource to a digital marketing firm to push your anti-Jamal Khashoggi messaging um, and the operation gets suspended, you can just be like, Hey, it wasn't, it wasn't us. It's just this like weird rogue social media agency that happens to be in our country and we had nothing to do with it. And, you know, people may or may not find that convincing, but it's still like, you know, something that you can say. And I think that that is really important. Um, So that's one reason. I think the second reason is that it allows you to create content. That's going to resonate more with local people. So for example, with the operation I was just talking about, the Russian operation that targeted Libya, um, where they had literally outsourced like two Libyans who were working you know, for this media outlet. A Libyan is for sure gonna be able to create content that's gonna resonate more with Libyans than a Russian or even a Libyan living in, in Russia. Um, so I think, I think that matters. Um, you know, if you look back at some of the, the for example, the publicly disclosed IRA, Tweets that targeted the US in 2016, you can see a lot of English as a second language issues. And, you know, with outsourcing, you're just not going to get that because you're going to be hiring people who are fluent in the language to create the content. Um, And then, third, yeah, I think, as you mentioned, cost definitely helps. Um, It's probably going to be, for example, you know, more expensive to hire. Someone who is, you know, really good and fluent in Arabic who lives in Russia, though it does actually appear that they've done that as well. Um, but it's just going to be much cheaper to hire someone who is who is in Libya, so you'll you'll save money that way. Um, and it's been interesting; we've we've seen just over the past two years, like the outsourcing go like even deeper because with the um, this 2019 operation that was linked to Yevgeny Prigozhin that targeted Africa, many African countries. Um, Part of the operation seemed to be run out of an Egyptian digital marketing firm that was targeting Libya. So that's close to Libya, but still not like Libya. And then just a few months ago, we see an operation that literally had outsourced two Libyans in Libya. So I think, you know, we're gonna see more of that going forward.
0: Yeah, we're gonna have to multinational corporations and <laughs> subsidiaries. Yeah, it's interesting. Now we can shift to the basic question I think that everyone's interested in is efficacy. What has the impact actually been? Do we have any evidence that shows that? these types of behaviors online are swaying opinion?
1: So this is definitely the million dollar question. Like what impact does any of this have on anything? And, you know, I'm sure it varies by operation. For some of these operations, I would totally be convinced if someone told me there was like no impact or there was like a huge impact. It's just really hard to know. And I think the reason why it's really hard to know is kind of interesting. So if we think back to the IRA's content that targeted the US in 2016, I like to use the example of like Texas secessionist content. So they had created a lot of content that was trying to be like, yeah, Texas should secede from the United States. And what is the effect of someone seeing that content? Well, probably the person who's seeing that content is already a Texas secessionist. It's unlikely that you or I were going to see that content. and so what is the marginal effect of, let's say you belong to, you, know, you follow 10 Texas secessionist pages and one of those is an IRA page. You know, what is the marginal effect of that one IRA page that's basically recycling arguments that's seen probably on other Texas secessionist pages? You know, I have no idea. Um, and you know, similarly, sometimes, sometimes it's pretty obvious that these operations, there's like no conceivable theory you could develop by which they would have an impact. So for example, this Royal Thai military operation if the tweets had basically no engagement, it's hard to imagine how that could have an impact. But then there's the stuff with Libya that I think is, you know, a little more nefarious and more worrying, where, you know, they were trying to undermine peace negotiations, the pages were pretty big. Um, you know, I, I, I can't imagine what kind of study you could create to try to figure out whether this had an, an effect, but it seems pretty likely that it probably you know, did affect people in some way. Um, But my hope is that, you know, researchers will try to, um, you know, think creatively to develop some type of methodology where you could try to measure the impact of some of this. Um, But I think it's it's a really, really, really tricky causal inference problem.
0: Absolutely. So given that we don't necessarily know direct impacts, do you think just more broadly that the targeting of sort of democracies in the West more generally and and countries in in Sub-Saharan Africa and other places, does it seem like democracies and countries with open media spaces would themselves, if there was an effect, be more susceptible? Does this seem to be a vulnerability in a specific regime or can we not really get to that point?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I see how you could make that argument that regime type might like moderate the effect of some of these operations. But Libya is kind of an interesting example. So like, you know, Libya after Gaddafi fell, the amount of people using social media just increased so dramatically. I've read statistics that 60% of Libyans are currently like active Facebook users. Like they went on Facebook in the past month or something like that. And so, you know, I don't know what kind of regime type we call Libya. It's definitely not as closed media wise as it was under Gaddafi, but certainly not a democracy. And it's in that type of environment where I think, you know, these types of information operations can be, you know, most nefarious in part because like the conflict in Libya is kind of like an internal civil war, but also is like a proxy war where like all the countries that are trying to meddle in the conflict are countries that have experience doing disinformation campaigns. So like the countries that are invested in Libya are like Russia, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Egypt, all these countries, like they know how to do social media disinfo. And so, you know, they're going to be doing it. So it's in that type of context that I think we should be kind of most worried about the effects of these types of operations. Um, And then if you wanted to develop a theory for kind of regime type more broadly, maybe, yeah, I haven't thought it through all the way.
0: I've also seen sort of on the other side, I know a lot of, not necessarily dictators, but a lot of strongmen and a lot of governments around the world have used fake news laws to clamp down on public spaces and these, these public forums. Do you see that as the opposite ending that people will justify more authoritarian policies due to these perceived insecurities in, in these public spaces?
1: Yeah, so it's complicated. So after we put out our report at the end of 2019 about this yevgeny Prigozhin linked operation targeting a bunch of African countries, there were some kind of weird takes that i was reading so like so that operation generally had these russian actors supporting african heads of state and so a lot of people were like oh clearly this means that african governments need to you know create new anti disinformation laws and it's like does it like this activity was like clearly benefiting them it's hard to imagine that they didn't know. I mean, maybe they didn't know, but my intuition is that they're probably even coordinating in some contexts. So is the right reaction here? Oh, like these countries should have more disinformation laws. Like, eh, you know, I don't, I don't know if that's like that productive, but I definitely agree that in authoritarian contexts, those types of laws are, are super worrisome.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So maybe we can get at potential policies here. And I'm I'm wondering if you think it's sustainable to continue to tackle these immense operations that straddle the entire globe with you know a group of very well-trained researchers, but still a group of researchers that doesn't necessarily have any specific uh, data that they can draw that's beyond the public in any any notable way. Are we playing kind of an elaborate game of whack-a-mole here, or is it actually having an effect? Has the naming of shaming of the operations and the sources of these operations had any impact on their willingness to do so, or has there not been enough teeth in these policies?
1: Yeah, so before I get to the question of kind of what impact any of this is happening um, on these operations, I will say that there are a lot of ongoing efforts to kind of diversify the community of people, both who have access to some of these uh, takedowns, um, but also to kind of um, make more diverse the community of people who are doing online open source investigation. Work. So, you know, Bellingcat runs these absolutely incredible digital research trainings, and they run them for free in um, non-Western countries. Uh, DFR Lab has this like digital Sherlock's program that uh, does this type of training for people around the world. Um, So I do think like those efforts are ongoing. Um, And I will say that like for my team, whenever we analyze one of these networks, we almost always try to bring on, um, you know, people who are either from these countries or speak the languages to kind of pick up on some of this this nuance. Um, In terms of kind of like what impact these takedowns have, I actually do think they're having an impact. Um, So of course, Facebook and Twitter are only Facebook and Twitter. So, you know, when we talk about these takedowns that are made public, we're really only talking about Facebook and Twitter. But I do think these takedowns have made it harder for operations to get the kind of reach that they want and that they're being pushed to these other channels. They're being pushed to websites, which is why, you know, for 2020, the IRA's activities that targeted the U.S. had these really... Um, kind of like marginal Facebook accounts, but the accounts were linked to these websites that they were actively kind of developing. And I think it's like a protection strategy for them that if their Facebook account comes down, they still have this this website. Um, Similarly, we've seen in a lot of these takedowns um, like leveraging telegram. So for example, I did a report on a Facebook takedown that was about an operation originating in Yemen that was spreading like anti-Houthi narratives. And these pages would run these contests where they'd be like, if you want to be eligible for, you know, X amount of money, you have to like our or join our Telegram channel. And you know, I can't. Say what their intent was, but my hunch is that they kind of knew that their on, presence on Facebook was pretty precarious. In part because one of these pages was pretending to be the Saudi Ministry of Finance, like that's not sustainable. You're going to come down, you know, sooner or later. Um, and so you want to push people to these channels that do kind of less content moderation. And I think that matters. It's I think it's not it is whackamole, but also it's like whackamole that matters because you're not going to get as much reach on some of these other platforms as you would if you had developed like a really sophisticated. Facebook page. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. That's my that's my perspective. I do think to some extent these takedowns have have an effect. And I guess on, on naming and shaming, like I was just amazed at we did this report on a Twitter takedown that was linked to the youth branch of Turkey's ruling party, the AKP. And in response to this report, the Turkey's office of the presidency issued a statement like threatening Turkey and saying how you know unfair this was. And so to me, that suggests that like these reports matter and people are seeing them. And particularly, it can matter if like another country that's kind of in opposition to you can use it to their advantage. So we did a report on a um, Pakistan operation that was really unusual. Um, it was an operation that was doing like mass reporting. So they were organizing The mass reporting of facebook accounts that were anti-islam um and so uh after that report came out like i got all the media inquiries from india because india just wanted to be like look at all this sketchy stuff that's happening in in pakistan because a lot of the mass reporting was also for like anti-india or was for pro-india and anti-pakistan content so i don't know i kind of think it it does matter to to some extent but yeah that's great to
0: hear yeah Yeah, no i mean that's great to hear i think from the US perspective, we hear about Russia you know, doing these things all the time and that it doesn't really seem like they have any <laughs> desire to stop. Um, and so it's great to hear that maybe in different scales and in different geopolitical climates, this is being interpreted in a different way and it does actually have reputational damage. Um, in terms of the, the attempt to crowdsource a lot of the, these efforts, I think that's fascinating. And I'll definitely um, try to listen back and put the, in the show notes the, the trainings that you mentioned uh, for anyone interested. Um, so looking to the future, we are kind of at, it seems like an inflection point in terms of internet security, internet laws in the United States. There's a big debate about how much power and how much authority you know internet companies should have. In terms of both threats and opportunities, we can start off with, with threats. What are you most worried about in these spaces? So you've talked about sort of these well-financed, very well-networked efforts. Is there anything even more worrying that maybe isn't available today, but you could see being an issue in five to 10 years. I've heard a lot about deep fakes. Is there anything like that, that you're particularly worried about or people in your operational space are particularly interested in?
1: Yeah, I think the thing that I am particularly worried about is AI generated text. So um, there is this thing called GPT-2 and more recently GPT-3, which um, lets you generate text that has been trained on a massive corpus of content. And a number of studies, including a really cool political science study that recently came out, have shown that people cannot distinguish between this content and human-generated content. There are some exceptions. It doesn't do as well for like longer content, but for, for tweet-length content, it's, it's pretty good. Um, and so, you know, I think this could matter because at the moment, one of the things that I think is slowing Russia down is its ability to hire native English language speakers. So um, there was an operation last year that Facebook and Graphica worked on that showed that um, these Russian actors had been trying to hire America and succeeded in hiring a few American freelancers to write content for them. But this was expensive. I forget exactly how much they were paid, but it was over $50, I think. And of course, it leads to the risk of exposure. And in fact, this operation was exposed, and they interviewed one of the American freelancers who was like, I had no idea, you know, who was reaching out to me, blah, blah, blah. Um, And so I think AI generated text could really help solve this problem because I've read the stuff that it creates and it, you know, reads exactly like it was written by a native English speaker. And so, you know, this matters um, because I think article length content is something that will probably be, you know, the Disinform- uh, one disinformation tactic of the future, um, where it's you know, less about tweets, maybe more about you know, writing these articles that you then you know, pitch to kind of politically aligned outlets. Um, you know, already the Saudi government has succeeded in placing some articles that they've written by these like sock puppet accounts. Um, so I think that's kind of worrying and we'll just suggest that um, you know, media outlets need to be really careful about vetting um, their, their contributors.
0: I would think they would have a strong interest in stalling out uh, strong competition for their own work as well. (laughs) It sounds like if somebody could write decently well, I would be out of a job fairly quickly. So I I don't like that development either. On the optimistic side, is there any of the policies that have been pitched in the last few years that aren't in place now that you think could have a real impact down the line?
1: Yeah, so I guess I've thought about this in the context of of Facebook and Twitter, but surely for like the other platforms, like one policy would just be, you know, be more public about your your disclosures um, because, you know, open source researchers like myself can really take one of these disclosures and kind of investigate outstanding leads and try to find, you know, related content that might still be live, but on other platforms. So I think, um, you know, the way particularly Twitter, you know, makes public to everyone every tweet from some of these takedowns. um, I think that's like a really neat thing and other platforms should do that as well. In fact, my understanding is that this um, Russian operation that was run out of Ghana and targeted the US was uncovered by CNN reporters because of partnership with researchers at Clemson University who found some Twitter accounts as a result of already suspended Twitter accounts that Twitter had, had publicized. So I think that's you know, really why being public about these is, is so important. Um, but I have thought a little bit about policy recommendations for, for Facebook and Twitter, just because those are the um, you know, platforms I'm kind of working most on. I think you know, one thing that, that Facebook could do, and there might be reasons not to do this, but it would be really helpful if they provided co-admin data for Facebook pages so that you could see that the person who is the admin on this page is also the admin on these seven other pages. I think that type of transparency would really um, help open source researchers. Um, And for Twitter, I think they could do something that Facebook is actually already doing. So um, Facebook has this thing called a page transparency feature where among other useful pieces of information, if a page has ever changed its name, it gets recorded in this page transparency feature. There is no equivalent on Twitter. And as a result, what can and what does happen is you have these Twitter accounts that change their screen name, delete all their previous tweets, and then just build new lives. But with their new lives, they're maintaining all the followers that they had previously. So what we saw happen in a recent Twitter takedown was the Saudi government had created fake Twitter accounts claiming to represent an interim Qatari government. And these accounts had like half a million followers. But they were created in like 2013 and their most res- recent visible tweet was only a few months ago. So who knows what they were doing before? Probably they were engaged in like spammy followback activity to get half a million followers. Then they just wiped all their tweets. They changed their screen name to interim Qatari government. And if you look at that, you're going to be like, oh, this, you know, no blue check mark, but probably it's legit. Um, so I think Twitter could provide the same kind of transparency that Facebook provides in terms of um, changes to names that would, that would help researchers as well.
0: Terrific. Well, more optimism. That's always great. I don't know. Do you have anything else to add?
1: Um, No, it's been really fun. Thanks for chatting with me.
0: Wonderful. Well, it's been great having you on and and the work that you guys are doing at the SIO is terrific and it's always great to read your work. So hopefully we'll have you back on again soon and maybe we can talk about another one of these operations.
1: Sounds great. Thanks so much, Morgan.
0: Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wichduck. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions or concerns, please contact UWPoliticalEconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.